0: Okay, so I'm glad you're here. Um, I I, w- I was walking to shul and um, just was kind of trying to learn a little bit and and pray a little. You know, they used to they they asked the the sons Rebbe, what do you do before you pray? And he says, I pray. <laughs> so so sometimes. Uh, Sometimes those are the most honest moments uh, to pray, which is on your way to pray, you know? So, anyway, I, I was just kind of just reflecting on the fact that, uh, that I, I feel, and I still feel, as though I've never been able to really get in touch with the, the greatness of Yaakov Avinu. Um, the, the sages call Yaakov Avinu the greatest of the Avos of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, that Yaakov is the greatest. And I could give you right now off the top of my head many explanations why that's the case, but there's a difference between knowing it and really knowing it, or knowing it and understanding it, or being able to recite facts and actually feel it, you know, and that's always the, the, the huge gap that we're always trying to uh, to bridge. And so I found myself uh, just just the, just during the walk, actually... Saying this prayer to God, that 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 He should allow me to understand, at least on some level, some some small level anyway, a, a taste of what actually the greatness of Yaakov Avinu was. Why why he was the greatest? Like to to really understand his greatness. Um. So. So then, something after I made that prayer, I something came to me, which was not, not an answer about Yaakov's greatness, but just an approach. And, and I'm sharing this with you because I think that this approach actually is, um, is something that we can apply to many aspects of spirituality. So, so the approach was the, the following, which was, if the sages say that he was the greatest, just accept the fact that he was the greatest. And instead of trying to understand why he was the greatest, Understand that he was, in fact, the greatest. And then the reasons why he was the greatest will all unfold and come to in other words, In other words, a lot of times when people approach subjects of spirituality and belief and things like that, the first thing that they want to do is prove to themselves that this particular thing is true. Right? And then, then they'll take it from there. But, It's sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes if you actually just accept something, just on good authority. So what would the good authority be? The fact that we have a direct line, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, all the way back from today to the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And if you look, if you actually want a list of names, the Rambam brings the head of each generation... From Mount Sinai to to the present, well, to his present day. But then that's already relatively speaking current history, and we can we can extend the list very easily from there. But in other words, we have an, an accounted for. We call it a Masora, a handing down of tradition, and 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 that's very solid. But I'm not offering that as a proof. What what, what I'm suggesting is is that when we have certain premises, certain certain foundations, we, we have good authority on why why we're saying these things. And so sometimes we, if we can allow ourselves, and of course this will all be a, a highly individual and very personal process, um, how to apply this, whether you choose to apply this or not, but to try this approach, which is to accept it, and then you'll see all the reasons why in fact it is true. So, so that for me was, was, uh, was was a real opening. And, um, you know, we should just kind of keep in mind that God deliberately created the world on purpose, by design, in a way that his existence cannot be proven. That was, that was, that was not a failure of God's. See, a lot of people, they don't think this through, but intuitively, their emotional logic is, is that there's some weakness to God, some weakness to God, because if God really were all powerful, and if he really were running the entire world, it would be so obvious that I wouldn't ever question it. So if God doesn't have the power to manifest his total mastery over everything, this must be a weakness in God. But if God then is weak, then the whole thing falls apart. So how can I believe any of it? I'm telling you, people don't, haven't thought about it long enough with clear thinking to be able to articulate it the way I just articulated it. But I'm telling you that this is kind of what's floating around in the back of many people's minds. But you have to understand that the entire premise of, of that whole chain of logic that I just suggested to you is all premised on something completely wrong. Which is, which is that God, it's not a failure of God's, God forbid, to, to be understood and to manifest himself. God has, by design, concealed himself in order to give us free choice for us to arrive at this truth. Because that's what God desires. God desires these human beings who have arrived at the oneness of God. Otherwise, what, he's, what, what he would have otherwise is another classification of angels, basically. Angels have an open revelation of God, not the completeness of God, because God is infinite and everything that he's created, including angels, are finite relative to his infinity, right? But they have no free choice, they have this open revelation. So in order to distinguish us from the angels, and by the way, this is why we're actually greater than the angels, is because even though we make mistakes, which, bless you, even though we make mistakes, which angels don't, and even though we have all sorts of ups and downs, which angels don't experience, nonetheless, the very fact that we're able to arrive at the truth of God is such a quantumly higher accomplishment than what angels can do, because they're just given that. They're just given that. They're just given that knowledge. You know? So God wanted to create something different with us. Mankind is different from the angels. We're higher than the angels because we're able to to look at the concealment of God and yet arrive at the truth and the oneness and the all-powerfulness of God. Now, just throw in one more PS to this, which is that Not only isn't it a sign of weakness, that God's presence isn't fully understood and known by the entire world, but it's actually the opposite. It's actually a sign of his complete and total mastery over all of creation. What I mean by that is God is creating and recreating the world every single instant, right? He's keeping us alive every single instance. He's balancing billions and trillions of creations, animals, human beings, business affairs, like all sorts of bloodlines, all sorts of accounts, all simultaneously, right? And he's doing that right in front of our eyes, right in front of our face, so seamlessly that we can scratch our heads and say, Do you think he even exists? (laughs) That is the greatest accomplishment of all. The fact that he can be running everything so masterfully and, and right in front of our faces and yet simultaneously conceal himself in such a way that he has to be arrived at. That's awesome. That's awesome beyond awesome. So, so, you see, if you, just, if you just accept it, you just accept what we have on authority. And, by the way, just the existence of the world itself is, you don't, you don't need more proof than the existence of the world itself. The existence of your own consciousness itself. To understand that there is a, a, a great power at work in the world. Then you open yourself up to receive all of the millennia of wisdom based on that premise. That's all based on that premise. So once you are there, then you can say, okay, so now teach me. Teach me. And now you'll find, you know, when I was growing up, I used to hear every once in a while people would say, oh yeah, the Jews are so smart. They have Freud and Marx and Einstein right? And then as I started to learn um, Torah, I thought, well, wait a second. Actually, we've had like a string of geniuses in every single generation, as great or greater than those people that I just mentioned, certainly, and each has built on the work of the other in an unbroken chain for several thousand years. There is no discipline in human civilization that can match the intellectual firepower and foundation and breadth of Torah. There is no other discipline. There is no other discipline. Because if you look in the sciences, for instance, the sciences keep on changing their paradigms. And um, if you haven't read this book, it's a good book to read. It's actually a small book, a very important book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Right? Um, And he talks about paradigm shifts and how like for instance like you know in uh in in the middle ages in in chemistry they were they were all alchemists like the great minds were alchemists and one of the things that they were trying to um trying to figure out was how to um create a stone that would touch another stone and turn it into gold right so so that that and they poured like like there was a lot of genius that went into basically how do we transform the elements of say lead or some other metal into gold and and and, and yet at a certain point they kind of said that's we're not that's not going to happen like like this whole the whole foundation of that And like generations were probably built on that. And really the greatest minds were like working on that problem. All of a sudden they kind of just threw it out. So what you have there is like the paradigm shift. And now they have to start again, right? Torah has never had to start again. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Torah has never had to start again. Because we started with the ultimate true premise, which is there is a God. He's one. He runs the world and he gave us the Torah. And then they're often running from there. And they never had to switch it around. That's why it's so amazing. If you open up a page of the Talmud, for instance, you'll see, like the way it's, it's sort of structured like this amazing like time machine, really. you know, where you have the, the text in the middle of the page, and then it's surrounded by all these different commentaries from different periods in history. And they're arguing with each other or discussing a point, or supporting each other, and explaining the text. And so you have conversations on the page, conversations between people from a thousand years ago talking about something with people from two thousand years ago, being supported by people from three hundred years ago, and it's sort of like this, and and how can they all be talking about the same thing? Because none of the terms have changed over history. That's very rare. It's very rare. Almost unique. Right? So, so, that's why you can open up a book from, you know, you can have a, 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 a question, oh, about Shabbos. Like, am I allowed to do this on Shabbos? And open up a book from someone who was living hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And he's telling you, oh yeah, yeah this is what you should do. Don't worry about it. This is, this is what's going on. Like that's that's amazing, that's amazing. Um, so now, now I wanna I wanna go further. Because you see, I guess the connection between what I've just been discussing in this next thought is just because it was the next thing I thought about on the walk to shul. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it'll sound like another topic because. More or less is but, but 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 let's keep on going so so uh, we, we have a, we have a way of approaching life now <clears throat> you see and, and we've talked about it further, but I want to kind of We've talked about it before, but I want to go further with it. And let, let's start. And it, this is actually based on a Torah on, on Yaakov Avinu, by the way. So, and I heard it from Reb Shlomo from the Ishbitzer Rebbe. And and he says he says like this. The Reb Shlomo put it in his his own terms. He said that you know there they're, um there are highway Jews and step by step Jews. So a highway Jew basically is there's the highway in front of me, and the highway is keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, right, Tefillin, um, tars Hamashbacha. You know the, the the general kind of halachas, uh mitzvah's commandments that were to follow. And most people they they walk down this road in life and and, and that's kind of how they approach their their relationship with God. He says, but then then there are step-by-step Jews. And a step-by-step Jew is, 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 is approaching life differently. It's not basically I'm living my life and these are the guiding principles of my life. It's every step along the way, they're asking God, what do you want from me this moment? In every situation they're in, what do you want from me this moment and you know the way i always visualized it is like if you look in a kaleidoscope and you turn the kaleidoscope and it's changing it's changing changing every situation we're in it's sort of like god is turning the kaleidoscope you know now we're sitting and learning now i'm at the supermarket now you know i'm with my family like every situation God creates a unique situation for us, and that's an opportunity for us to accomplish something. Each situation in our life. And so each situation it's appropriate to ask, what am I, what what do you want from me this moment? Now, when you take this approach, this approach actually leads to an even deeper place. You see, you know, having having grown up with, um, you know, in a more sort of assimilated, secular way. But Judaism was a big part of my life growing up, and it was a big foundation. And, you know, thank God it, it, it developed and became a more serious part of my life. Um, but so, so for that reason, like, just for me to kind of you know, just take on the basic practices of Shabbos and, and, and all of the rest, were, were, you know, things that, you know, had to be kind of like approached and grappled with and, and accomplished and everything like that. But when you look at sort of life from the eyes of, say, the Ishwitzer, all of that, like the, 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 the basic level of keeping the mitzvahs, that's all just the most basic thing in the world. You know what I mean? That's not, we're not even talking about that, of course. Of course, of course you're doing all that. There's a bigger question. What's the bigger spiritual question? Which is what do I need to fix in terms of my own soul? In other words the the game isn't so to speak, you know, yeah. am I am I keeping this mitzvah, am I not keeping that mitzvah? You know, at this stage you're already you're keeping everything. The bigger question is, the bigger question is how can I fix my own soul? And and that then becomes a whole amazing deepening of the entire experience. You know, getting back to what does God want from me this moment? Because you realize, see like the Gomorrah says, one of the differences, one of the many differences between us and God, is that when God mints coins, right? Like, like... Or rather, when, when human beings mint coins, right, every single coin looks the same, right? Um, you know, if you go to the, the, the treasury, I've never been, but apparently you can actually see them coming off the conveyor belt, all the pennies or all the, you know, quarters, whatever it is, they're all the same. But when God makes people, every single one is different, <laughs> It's actually an amazing thing. Like, there's been, in all of history, there have been no two people that have ever been the same. You would think that God would sort of like, all right, well, let's start repeating it. We'll go back to the year, you know. 2000 BCE, no one remembers that guy. You know, let's bring him back. You know, so we'll just kind of do the whole thing again. You know, we both... Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. So so you know you know we've run out, but no one's going to catch me, <laughs> right? So, but God doesn't do that. God keeps on making brand new people, and even within reincarnation, you should know that it's it's not exactly the same person. It's it's a little bit different at the very least. That's what I've been talking about, you know. Um, but we're going to get into reincarnation in a moment. So, so the idea of, of having to fix your soul you know it's 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 in other words it's not just i have to do the mitzvahs but i as this unique individual creation who's never existed before and who's who will never exist again in this exact form this incarnation has to keep the mitzvahs this incarnation has to fix their soul now, that's, 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 that unfolds like a whole new level of, of drama, really, and relationship and interest. Like, what do I have to do? Now, I, I've heard this a couple of times, and I, I, I thought that this was a very interesting thought, if you're not familiar with it yet, regarding reincarnation, which is that all of us have um, strengths. You know, we're, we're good at this or we're good at that, say. And, and, and especially in terms of serving God. Maybe we're especially good at, say, giving tzedakah, or maybe we're especially good at being kind to other people. Things like this. For instance, right? So, so the Kabbalists say, basically, that, that the reason why you're good at those things is because in your previous lifetimes, you, you were actually able to master those things. And so, in this present lifetime, you've sort of inherited all the positive work that you've done on your soul, and now this is something that's, you know, you you can do it. It's it's not that hard, let's say. Or maybe it's even easy. Maybe it's even an outright strength. But the thing that's hardest for you right now, those things, that's the thing that you didn't that you haven't yet accomplished yet from your previous lifetimes. And that's why it's so hard. As opposed to those other things. Is that clear? Is that point clear? So that's a window into something very interesting, if you if you follow, which is that those things which are hardest for me to do are perhaps the reason why I'm here right now. And perhaps the things... That I have to focus on in order to fix, because that's that 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 is what I'm here to do. In terms of fixing myself. So, I remember, like there were. Um, I remember, I, I no one said it to me as, not that I just said it over so great, but no one said it over to me as 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 a complete thought, like like I just said it to you. You know, what I had heard, like, at, at different times in my observance, especially early on, which is, the thing that's hardest hardest for you is the thing that you have to fix. But I didn't understand the logic behind it, and I just felt completely oppressed by that thought. <laughs> and I had no way of actually integrating it into my brain, because there was no context to that thought. You know, and I had so much trouble with so many things, that it's sort of like, oh, no, okay, you know... <sighs> It was just burying me, you know what I mean? But now at least I get the idea. Of it. Now at least I get the idea, of it, you know? So, so, I was at a, uh, uh, a friend was doing a uh, an appearance, was giving a, a talk at a mystical bookshop, right? And they wanted, you know, kind of like their friends to come out and things like that to support them, so... Being a friend, I you know, I, I I went and and you know it was like you know whatever people imagine and you know goes on in places like Venice Beach and things like that. That that's what this was you know. But this was it was actually a lovely event you know. It was it was actually a lovely event. But I I'm just sort of struck by by one thing that happened, which was someone asked a question and about past lives, and and the person said, oh, actually, you know. We have a, um, an authority on past lives right here. What you know? And the person stood up and it was sort of like this very sort of slightly zany looking person in their 60s, and you know kind of spoke to, to the issue, and actually said something very good, I thought, you know, which was which was, um, which was that there were two kind of like, according to her, and, and she was not saying this in the name of the Torah at all. But it seemed to make sense to me, um, which was that that there are two main categories in terms of one dealing with their previous lives. One is to get over a scarring event. The other is to accomplish work which hasn't been completed yet. So certainly the idea of accomplishing work that hasn't been completed yet, that's what we just said, that 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 certainly is the Jewish approach, right? But 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 I thought that this was interesting, the idea that she phrased it in the negative, that there was also the idea of being able to get over a, a previous scarring event. You know what I mean? So that I thought that was interesting, but I put it in heavy parentheticals, since I haven't got a Torah so, source for it. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I just put it out there because it, it could certainly be integrated into this approach, I think. I think. But I just offer that to you but um but but one thing that I would definitely caution everybody against and this is coming from someone who believes in um, you know in in what the Torah says about reincarnation and believes that we have um, and you know part of our soul to fix do not do not do not go to any of these people who do past life regressions. Do not, do not avoid that. Please, please, please do not do that. Because there is no authority that what they're telling you is accurate at all, and it can just absolutely mess you up. You know, they're not prophets. They're, they just, and I've seen it in my own life, I, I've seen one person really suffer from having done that. Um, they had a lot of other problems, but this absolutely didn't help them. So just, I would just really avoid that. And, you, and, and, and one of the aspects is that a person actually... You see, it's funny. Someone came up to me. We were talking about these ideas. Someone came up to me after the talk and said to me, well, we don't know what it is about our, our life that needs to be fixed, Right? So why would God give us such an important task to do and then not tell us, right? But one thing I would say just off the, off the top, I didn't say this to him, was does, who tells us who to marry, right? So that, that's a hugely important piece of our life, you know, and we're not given that information, right? So it's certainly consistent with the way God runs the world in many ways to give us an important task without giving us all the actual details for it. And I think that there are certain things that, that we have to arrive at, that we have to arrive at, and that that, that is actually the preferred process of how actually to accomplish it um, most accurately and, and, and most successfully is, is, is not to be told. So I don't think that there's a, a contradiction there. Um, so, so this... This then becomes a journey. It becomes a journey of self-exploration of what about us, what we feel about us, needs to be rectified, needs to be fixed, what quality needs to be worked on. And what I think is kind of cool is that um, Judaism is really very anti-narcissistic. Now, narcissism... um, You'll you'll remember, it comes from uh, the uh, Greek uh, named Narcissus, right? And who was Narcissus? He was a guy whose favorite activity in life was just to stare at his reflection. (laughs) He loved the way he looked. And that was like, that was it. So that was Narcissus. And so the idea of just sort of like admiring yourself, right? was named after him, and so we have narcissism, right? So so we have to be careful when it comes to, like, really looking into our souls and trying to figure out what, what it is that needs to be fixed, that it shouldn't become sort of this spiritually narcissistic act where we're just basically becoming, in the name of God, we're just basically found a new, exciting way to become self-involved right that's that's not that's not the point and and i think that it's beautifully expressed um this this dynamic of the anti-narcissistic aspect of judaism which is um you know is expressed in these two words lech lecha so lech lecha of course was the command that was given to abraham avinu to go to israel right but you could have just said let uh, uh, lech, which means to go, right? But, but, but God, threw in this extra word lecha means to yourself. So now you have this amazing dynamic where you go forward, you leave yourself, you enter into the world, you're involved in concerns outside of yourself, right? That's the lech. And then you have the lecha where you look inside yourself and you say, why am I here? What am I doing? What am I supposed to accomplish? And then you're back to the lech. So it's lech lecha and lech lecha and lech lecha and lech lecha. So there's this amazing dynamic where you are looking into yourself, but you're looking into yourself in order to figure out what it is that you have to put back into the world. So so it allows for self-exploration, but at the same time, it's counterbalanced with the idea of being the opposite of self-involved to be very active in the world. Now, now, if I understand the way Reb Shlomo was explaining the Ishwitzers approach, if I, if I understand it correctly, there's this Aspect of almost incompleteness to every person, or brokenness, or lacking, or an aspect that needs to be fixed, which is even beyond anything, beyond anything else, um, and 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 if I understand it, and and perhaps these are my words now. But if I understand it, that remember, each person is a microcosm of the entire world, meaning to say, each person is a miniature of the world, and that's why we say, if you fix yourself, you fix the world, right? So, so, you know, I, I, I I've shared it with you before, but one of my favorite parables in the whole world is a. Uh, a man comes home from work and he's very exhausted and he just wants to rest and his young child wants to play with him and the man just is just trying to figure out a way to kind of buy some time while he's resting. And so he takes the newspaper that he's reading, he sees there's a map of the world, he cuts it into a bunch of many pieces, rips it up into many pieces, like makes a jigsaw puzzle out of it, and gives it to his young child and says, you know, when you put together this map of the world, then we'll play." And like the child comes right back to him and says, okay, I did it. He's like, what? And he looks, he really did it. He says, how did you do that? He says, it was simple. On the back was a picture of a person. And when I put the person together, the whole world fell into place. (laughs) Right? So here you see this idea that you fix yourself, you fix the world, because each person is a miniature of the entire world. Now we say that one of the reasons why the Medrash says that the world is not finished yet. That, that, that That's why there's so many problems in the world. Because it's not done yet. It's not finished yet. And that God created us to be partners with Him in terms of finishing the world. That's why we're here. So if, that's the, if the world itself is not finished yet, each of us is also not finished yet. Each of us has this this almost existential missing aspect, incompleteness to ourselves. Because we're a miniature of what's going on in the world itself. The world is not finished yet. We're not finished yet. When we finish ourselves, when we finish that thing, those things inside of us, then collectively the world becomes finished as well. Now, I want to make a This, it seems to me, and this is just me talking right now, but it seems to me that this process of trying to explore deeper and deeper what is it that I can fix without, again, becoming narcissistic, right? Or self-involved, right? You know, it's such a temptation because Judaism and probably any spiritual path, but I think, you know, just because this is what I'm doing, I see it, I see it in myself, that Judaism sometimes just gives you this very sort of like subtle permission to be selfish and things like that. And, and it, in, in other words, it can be misused, where you say, well, you know, right now I want to do this mitzvah, right? So don't tell me to do that chore around the house, because I want to do this mitzvah. But a lot of times what that conversation really is, leave me alone. I, you know, I want to do what I want to do. Happens to be a mitzvah, so I've got, you know, a great argument against you. You know? But is that really on a deeper level what's going on with the person? It might be just, you know, leave me alone. So a person has to be very careful not to misuse the Torah. You know, or or to pretend that there's something righteous going on when there's really something self involved or selfish going on. These are the the, the clarifications that 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 any serious person has to be involved in. You know, so then you say, Okay, well then that that's the bigger mitzvah right now. That 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 is actually it's not the one I want to do right now, but that, that actually is the bigger one, so let me do that. These are all balances. These are all balances, and it's all, and it's all trial and error, because you never get these things right all the time. You don't. But, but, you, but the, but the uh, effort involved in trying is very precious to God. Okay, so now I just want to make the last point, and we'll finish with this, but I think this is an important point, to me anyway. So this process is a lifelong process. Right. I mean, they they talk about. I can't give you the exact specifics off the top of my head this moment, but there's a, f- a couple of classic stories about tzaddikim who were on their deathbed, who were explaining what they were going through, and the 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 the, the, the students were like, "You mean your yechi your Yitzhara was with you till the to the last moment of your life, basically? I mean, you know, so." So these are things that, that, that we'll probably struggle with. And when I say probably, I, I can leave out the word probably. That we'll struggle with our entire lives. But I want to make the distinction between, and here's the point, a receding horizon and an asymptote. Okay, I'll explain what that word means if you don't know it in a moment. So what's a receding horizon? A receding horizon is you're standing on the beach and you look at the ocean and in front of you is that, that line where the sky meets the ocean, right? Everyone has seen that. That's called the horizon. Now, let's say you go, wow, it's so cool. That's where the sky meets the ocean. I want to go to that place. Mm-hmm. So you jump in the water and you start swimming. But as you get closer to it, it, gets, it moves further away. So you go, oh, I know what's wrong. I'm not going fast enough. So you get into a speedboat, right? And the speedboat goes, and you find the same thing happens. That the horizon line keeps on getting further away. Why does it keep on getting further away? Because it's an illusion. It's based on the curvature of the earth. It's an optical illusion that the sky, when we think of the sky, like the sky up above, ever touches the water. It doesn't touch the water. Okay, but it just looks that way and as we get closer it gets further so so one can look at these spiritual um endeavors that seemingly are lifelong and one might be tempted mistakenly by the way but one might be tempted to think i'm just chasing a, a receding horizon it's just it's it's just it's just It's ultimately pointless. Okay. So, that is not the case at all. Because that's not the proper model. The proper model is the asymptote. Now, if you... I I remember this from math. You have the x-axis and the y-axis, right? That that intersects, right? That makes like a, you know, like a t or whatever it is. And then you have certain um, curves, which... Start, you know, like, basically, we're going to be making the letter L. You can picture the letter L, you know, um, but it's, it's a little bit different. Where the line goes down toward the baseline, toward the horizontal line, right? Is that the x-axis? Yes. Okay. So it's going, the line is curving down from above. It's curving down toward the x-axis. And what happens is, is that it, it gets ever, ever, ever closer to touching the line of the x-axis, right? But it never, ever touches it. And that's called an asymptote. This is a, a real thing in math, okay? In other words, it gets ever, ever infinitely close without actually ever touching the line. Now, I would say that one's spiritual endeavors, one's effort to fix their soul, right? To do all these things is actually modeled on the asymptote. Why? Because with the receding horizon, you're just chasing, 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 and you're never getting closer. But with the asymptote, you're actually getting closer. You are getting closer. Something very real is happening. You're elevating your soul. You're elevating the world. You're bringing light into the world. You're bringing redemption into the world, right? But there is an essential dynamic at play, which is that God is infinite, and we're finite, and the finite will never catch the infinite. We're creations of God. We're not God. We're an aspect of God, but we're not God himself. So we'll never reach God, but that's appropriate because God is infinite, and we're finite. We're we're, we're, we're his creations. But that doesn't mean that we're not getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And that that's not realer and realer and realer and realer. It a thousand percent is. A thousand percent. And everything, anything, anyone does, especially if it's challenging, gets you that much closer and brings that much more light into the world. So Hashem should bless us that we should really be able to get a handle, at least at this stage in our life, of what it is that we can fix, right? And to understand it's a lifelong process. And to understand that everything we do toward that end is fixing the entire world.